So when we have a gathering like this and I look out upon the uh, the crowds here and I sometimes the question arises why do people keep coming uh, year after year, some of you have been coming for longer than I've been here, Minsu. Um, and um, it's wonderful, it's inspiring, um, but these huge crowds of people could be doing all sorts of things on a lovely, beautiful Northumbrian sunny afternoon, but they choose to come here. And so I think, what is it that brings people here? And then, well, the answer that comes up in my mind is it's goodness. You know, there's a part of us as human beings that is really drawn by goodness, really attracted by goodness, that delights in goodness, celebrates. This is a celebration. This is a festival. And what's it about? It's about goodness. It's about generosity, kindness, cooperation. I've, I've really, um, this year I'd like to compliment our organisers on what a beautiful... Um, manner they all met with each other during the organisation. There's many diverse groups, different nationalities, young, the Thai students, some of them probably not even 20 yet, and then there's some at the other end of the spectrum. It's this goodness that I feel uh, we feel drawn by and we want to celebrate. Now, of course, some of you will be thinking, well, yes, some human beings are drawn by things that are not good, and celebrate those things as well, which, of course, is, is uh, very sad. But those are not the pure things. The purer part of us, if in our heart of hearts we're honest, the purer part of us is really drawn by goodness. And when we see it, uh, it delights us. And so I think this is, in my feeling, this is what attracts people here. Don't necessarily even have to be Buddhist to come here on a day like this. It's something very, uh, very delightful about this celebration of goodness. And however, the, uh, the Buddha was quite precise. Not only did he give instructions on many skillful ways for cultivating goodness, but he didn't stop there. That wasn't all he taught. He didn't just teach about believing in or celebrating goodness. He, said he wanted you to take it to another level. Goodness, from the Buddhist perspective, is like it's like the nourishment. The image, one of the images the Buddha gave, he said, actually, it's like, the, it's like the, the soft wood of a tree. But then he said there's the heart wood. He wants you to penetrate the heart wood, the core, the essence of his teaching. It's not goodness. The goodness is the surface level. Mm. Or if you're into computer, it's like not settling for the surface level of fiddling with the... Uh, the coding of a bit of software, but it's the source code. You want to go right in to the core. And so on this occasion of cultivating all this goodness, so we could just perhaps take a few minutes to also pay attention to what was it really that the Buddha was pointing towards beyond goodness. I'm sure all of us are aware that uh, good people suffer as well. 
sometimes you know, why somebody so good suffers so much and well the Buddha had an answer for that he said that goodness is not going to save you goodness is the nourishment the nutriment that gives you the energy to investigate reality until you arrive at wisdom and so this is really the essence. This is the heartwood. This is the source code. This is what the Buddha was pointing towards. And he said, it's a very tricky thing. It's not an easy matter, and we all need to help each other. And, well, for all of us, we're very fortunate. We, we have each other here, and we still have access to recorded teachings of our wonderful great teacher, Ajahn Chah, and the many other great uh, realized teachers that we've had on the planet and the the last hundred years uh, we're hugely fortunate to have access to these teachings because they do give us the pointing in the direction we need to go if we want to reach what the buddha was really aiming for yeah? it's not just being good it's not just accumulating merit he wanted us to take it to another level so what is the function of wisdom why does he emphasize wisdom so much it's because it's wisdom he said, that recognizes how we turn life into suffering. Life, this life that we're all living, this world that we live on, you know the Buddha lived in this world just as we do. He walked on this planet, ate food, you know, took a bath in the evening, got old, had a pain in his back, just like we do. But the Buddha didn't suffer. But we do. What's the difference? Well, this is what the Buddha wanted to recognize. He said, there is something that we're doing that's extra. It's this extra thing we're doing which wisdom recognizes. So that's why wisdom is so important. You know, goodness is what energizes us. It's like the juice in the tank. You might have a really nice car, but you've got no juice. You've got no gas. You're not going to get anywhere. So we might have this healthy human body and a reasonably good education and some nice ideas, but if we don't have a heart of goodness, then we're not going to get anywhere. But even if we've got a heart of goodness, we need to take it to the next level, which is to look closely at life, say, what is it that we're doing? What are we adding that's extra that turns this life, which is like this, into suffering? And it is clinging. That's what we do. It's clinging, we do it over and over again. And even when there's goodness, if we're not careful, if we're not wise, we can spoil it. And so, yeah, there's uh, even religious people fall out with each other. Even monks and nuns fall out with each other. Not because they don't have teachings, not because they're not good. They may be very, very good, but they're not wise. So this is something really worth stopping to consider. How do we do what the Buddha was asking us to do? Not just believe, but how do we do what he was asking us to do, which is bring attention to this thing we're adding extra to life, this thing we're doing that we don't have to do, which is clinging. A few days ago I was listening to uh, some tape recordings of Ajahn Chah. It was the the end of our rains retreat. It was the Puana day, and and I remember all my my years in Thailand many years ago, and and when Ajahn Chah was still there with us and giving his teachings, and and it's sometimes listening to talks by Ajahn Chah is just a, a delightful thing to do, just to hear his voice. And one of the talks that I listened to was a recording of a message that he sent to us when we were 
uh, living in Chethurst. Ajahn Amaro was there in those days. Ajahn Sundra was there in those days. Very early days in Chethurst where we were just starting out with building these monasteries. And Ajahn Chah sent a very lovely message wishing us well and giving us some, as the Thais would say, gumlangjai, some, some heart energy. And uh, part of this little talk that he gave, he was kind of poking at Ajahn Sumedho a little bit and saying, well, you know now, Sumedho, you're, you're an upachaya, you're a preceptor, and you've got this nice big monastery, and, and I guess everything is just fine. You don't have any problems, do you? And, uh, of course, Ajahn Chah knew very well that being the abbot of a monastery, uh, there's no such thing as no problems. There are problems for all of us, whatever situation we live in, including Ajahn Chah's life. He had a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties. But what was different in Ajahn Chah's situation was he had the wisdom to know how to not make it any more difficult than it was already. Life can be difficult for all of us, whatever position you're in. Abbot of a monastery, great teacher. Realized teacher, you can still have serious difficulties, but do we cling to it? Do we attach to it? Do we spoil the goodness of our life by adding this thing that's extra? And again, what the Buddha and all the great teachers have pointed out to us over and over again is that we don't have to do this. Yeah. And there's a recording uh, in the suttas of the Buddha telling a parable, uh, very well known, actually not just in Buddhist traditions, but in all sorts of other traditions uh, since the Buddha, 2,600 and something years ago. This, uh, this parable the Buddha told at a time when some of the monks, some of his disciples were commenting on how followers of other religions were getting into little argy-bargy. They were arguing with each other and contending and is the universe eternal? Is it not eternal? And you know, is the self real? Is the self not real? And so on. And and so the the Buddha on this occasion related uh, a story. I don't know if he ever claimed it was true or not, but it was a parable he told of a, uh, a king in ancient times. Uh, many of you will be familiar with this story. And this king gathered together a, a group of blind people who'd been blind since birth and got them to check out this elephant. You know, I think this was like in the market square, and everybody's around, all the village folk are there, and everybody's there. And, and, uh, and so these blind men are touching the elephant, and then, and then they're all asked to describe the elephant. What is the elephant like? Tell us what the elephant is like. And, and so one fellow, he was, he was touching the elephant's head, and he said, oh, the elephant is like a cooking pot. And then somebody else, he... He had a hold of the, the elephant's foot and said, oh, the elephant is just like a post. And, and then somebody else, another blind person, had a hold of the, the elephant's tail and said, oh, the, the elephant is like a broom. And then they all start arguing with each other. And, uh, and so the example being that if you're blind and you're not wise... You're attached to your limited perspective on things, and this leads to falling out. This leads to arguments. This leads to disagreeing. This leads to suffering, and and it's an image that we can all uh, well pay attention to. Because even if you're, in fact, when you are very well educated, that doesn't mean to say we're wise. 
We can read a lot about the universe. We can read a lot about psychology and the, the nature of self, and but not be wise. And wisdom means taking it to another level and investigating the relationship we have to our knowledge. Because even the knowledge we have, if we cling to it, we spoil it. Hmm. And that's true right across the board. All cultures, all ages, all time. From the time of the Buddha right up until now. You might have come across a, um, a recorded teaching of Ajahn Chah that's printed in his collected teachings. It's a, a very brief uh, question and answer session with Lumpur Chah recorded by uh, Jack Cornfield. And uh, this Q&A session, uh, I don't know who was actually conducting the questions, but somebody asked Ajahn Chah and said, said, oh, Lumpur, he said, what, what, is your, what is the greatest difficulty with your new disciples? And by that, I presume he meant the Westerners. And, uh, and he said, oh, he said, he said, they have so many views and opinions. He said, they got views and opinions on everything. They got views and opinions about themselves, about the practice, about the Buddha. And he said, they just attached these views and opinions. And went on to say that, he said, it's like, it's like a, a glass of stale water. The glass of stale water, when it's full of stale water, the glass is actually useless. The glass is useless because it's full of stale water. What's needed is to tip that out, is to let go of the old stale habits of clinging and start afresh. And so this is over and over again on many occasions and many skillful means the Buddha pointed in this direction. This is the direction we need to go to learn to let go. As children, of course we're clinging. We cling to mum and dad, we cling to our toys, we cling to all sorts of things as children. That's appropriate for children. But as we grow up, unfortunately we don't all get the teachings, but the great lesson in life is we've got to stop this clinging business. That's for children. When you're an adult, we learn to let go and accord with life. Life is changing. Every aspect of life is changing. And if we know how to skillfully let go, we know how to accord with that change. And then that conduces with harmony. And so this is one aspect of the Buddha's teachings, that if we want to live in harmony in our relationships with each other, with this planet which is increasingly accelerated rate moving towards crisis, as we all would be aware, you know, why are we not living in harmony with it? Because we don't recognize the truth of the situation we live in and we have this very uh, early stage of development habit of clinging. So you read the Buddha's suttas, you're listening to the discourses from the great teachers and they're always pointing this direction. How to learn to undo this habit that we picked up as children and let go in accord with the life we're living. There's a very beautiful uh, recorded teaching, again, from the Buddha. Uh, it was an occasion when the first nun, uh, Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, asked the Buddha for, a, like a barometer for practice, some key points. She wanted to know how to measure her practice, what was Dhamma, what was not Dhamma. And the Buddha gave her eight points. And these eight points she took away and used as a guideline in her practice. And these eight points were all about letting go. Dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort and solitude. These are the things, Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, this is what you should reflect on. That which conduces with these, dispassion, detachment, dispersal, 
modesty, contentment, frugality, effort and solitude. And, and so you, here when the Buddha pointed out these things, you can commit them to memory. And I did many years ago and I found it a very useful list and I reflect on it and dispatch, detachment, dispersal, modesty, it's very helpful. Maybe your practice is going off somewhere and think, oh, what am I supposed to be doing in practice? And Well, this is one of the benefits of the pariyati level of practice, of studying the theory. You commit these guidelines that the Buddhists gave, the pointings the Buddha gave, you commit these to memory. And then when you're going out of balance a little bit, you turn to them and say, right, well, which one? All right, that one. Contentment. Contentment. I've got everything. I've got a lovely place to live in, lovely people to live with, enough food, marvellous medical care, more clothes than I could possibly wear, and what am I doing? I'm indulging in discontentment. That's very helpful. And so what do we do? So what, are we do what are we actually doing in this moment? Yeah. So we don't just believe in what the Buddha talked about. Yeah, that's not it. But it wants us to actually practice, wants us to do something. And so, you know, being discontented is something we're doing, we're adding to life by complaining, by always wanting it to be otherwise, saying it shouldn't be this way. It's the easiest thing in the world to say it shouldn't be this way. But if we get lost in that, if we're always doing that, then the result is discontentment. But the good news is all we have to do is see it, really see it with the whole body-mind, not just believe in it, really see it, and then, if there is an inkling of wisdom, letting go happens. There's a, a verse in the Dhammapada, many of you be familiar with, the Buddha's teaching, the collection of teachings of the Dhammapada, verse 290, where it says, it's wisdom which enables letting go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a greater happiness. The greater happiness the Buddha was pointing to is life without clinging. The whole body-mind is in harmony with life, which the Buddha said is the greatest happiness, a heart that's free from ignorance. That greater happiness does, however, require letting go of a lesser happiness. So, for instance, it's not the case that getting things is not fun, you know, like getting things, getting more money, you know, getting a nice new car, it can be nice, but... You know, getting more stuff can also mean you worry more. You know, you work very hard, earn a lot of money, and you buy a really nice Audi, and it's got really pristine paintwork. And, and what are you doing? You're always looking out the window to see whether somebody's scratching it. You know, you, you go to Tesco's and you park so there's nobody anywhere near you. You park way over there so you can you know, walk a half a mile because you don't want anybody to scratch your new Audi or whatever. You, you put it Getting stuff is not sustainable happiness. That's sort of happy. The Buddha wanted us to not settle for being sort of happy, not settle for just tinkering with the surface level of the, of the software that we're playing, but go to the source code and get right deep, get into deep and see what is the real cause of our suffering and its clinging. So being sort of happy, you, you can drink alcohol and be sort of happy, but then in the morning you feel terrible. Yeah. Whereas if you go on a meditation retreat, you don't feel like getting drunk and you don't feel so happy. But actually, after a few days, you feel great, maybe. So these, uh, these teachings that the Buddha gave and the great teachers have given us over the years, we're hugely fortunate to have them. 
because they show us what we're doing, that if we're not careful, even the goodness of our lives, we can spoil it. All the goodness that we've inherited, you know, being, like many of you have been born to Buddhist parents and you, know, you take Buddhism for granted, you don't realize how rare in the world that is to have these teachings. You look around the world and you say, why are so many people confused? They don't have anything that gives them an orientation in life. They're just reacting, confused. But if you come across teachings that truly accord with reality, that really speak to the deepest place within you, then you've got an orientation in your life. That's a great goodness. But, as I'm saying, the Buddha didn't want us to just settle for that and cling to that. You know, we're even clinging to the Buddha's teachings, you know, like those guys that motivated the Buddha to tell that parable, those followers of other religions were all falling out with each other. That's what happens when you cling to the form. Even clinging to religious opinions is a very easy thing to do. It's like if you, for instance, if you, if you hear all sorts of wonderful things about Amrawati Monastery, Amrawati Monastery, just outside Hamel Hampstead, beautiful, inspiring, Ajahn Sumaita used to live there, Ajahn Amro now lives there, and Ajahn Sundra lives there, and Ajahn Jitapala lives there, and these great, inspiring monks and nuns, and it's really something special. So, well, let's go to Amrawati. And, and you get in the car with your friends, and you travel, what is it, five hours or something down the M1, which is not fun, necessarily, but you really want to go to Amrawati. And, and then you turn off, if you're mindful, you turn off the M1 at the right place, and don't end up in London and you turn off and then you're in Hamel Hampstead and again if you're mindful you navigate this exceedingly crazy roundabout there and it's called magic but it should be called crazy roundabout and then you you head out on the Leighton Buzzard Road and, and then you read Great Gatterson and you're getting really excited oh we're going to Amrawati, we're going to Amrawati and, and then you go up and then you Piper's Hill and then Margaret's Lane and you're going down Margaret's Lane and, and then you get there at the entrance to Amrawati, and there it is, this beautiful big sign. It's gorgeously gold debossed in Pali and English and Thai and Amrawati Buddhist Monastery, and you're so happy to have arrived. And, and you get out, and, and you're all just so delighted after all this journey, and you get your selfie stick out with your friends, you're taking selfies and, in front of the signs, and you're, just, you're talking about how wonderful it is to be there, and then you get in the car and drive five hours back to Newcastle. <laughs> Well, how clever is that? Well, that's, that's literally clinging to the Buddhist teachings. It's the same thing. It's not about the form or the representation. Uh, it's not the outer impression of the teachings that the Buddha wanted us to settle for. He wanted us to go in the direction that he was pointing, which means really learning that when we don't get our own way, when me and my way is challenged... You know, that's when we draw on our resource of goodness. All the goodness we've accumulated, that's when we use it. And so it's not just a matter of storing up goodness, it's a matter of looking after it until we need to draw on it so that when life challenges us, when we suffer, we've got this resource, we've got this reserve, we've got this energy we can draw on, and then we can contemplate. What am I doing? What am I adding to life right now that's turning life into suffering? You can reflect on Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati's eight dhammas. That's good. Or maybe eight is too many, so you settle for three. Dana Sila Bhavana. 
That's all. Dharma is all about letting go of me and my way. Every time, every time we make a gift or an offering, the knotted heart muscle of self-interest relaxes a little bit. Letting go of me and my way. Sila, every time we invest in cultivating integrity, we're potentially letting go of the, the fear that comes with compromising integrity. You know, why do we feel, why do so many people feel afraid when they've got, they've got so much stuff, got so many blessings? But regrettably, for a lot of people, they're compromising integrity. They're not observing precepts. People think rules are a problem. Actually, rules are really helpful. And when we got 227, personally, I had a very fortunate little lesson in this. Some time ago, I, I managed to stand on my glasses twice within a very short period of time, just ground them into the gravel, and, and that, your glasses are not much good if you do that. And I did it twice, or well, maybe the second time I sat on them, I don't know. But anyway, I ruined two pairs of glasses. And so I thought, well, this is expensive. This is not a good idea. So I made myself a rule. When I put my glasses down, I'm never going to put it anywhere that I can sit or stand. That is a rule. Because the truth is, even though I like to think I'm reasonably mindful, I'm not. Sometimes I just put my glasses down and I... (laughs) We're not always mindful. We're not always restrained with our body and our speech. So rules help us. Rules are really helping us. So dana, sila, and pawana. Every time we invest in pawana in the cultivation of that, that use of our intelligence to see where and when we're adding something to life that's extra, that's not necessary, by saying it shouldn't be this way. Yeah. We don't have to do that. Most of us think we, we don't have a choice. Yeah. But if we use our storehouse of goodness and we engage this wonderful intelligence that we're all fortunate to have had trained and educated to direct it, not just towards more clinging and more getting stuff, but how to direct it towards what is this process of clinging that the Buddha talked about? What is it? And if we're sharp enough and quick enough and interested enough, maybe we experience a moment of seeing it and experiencing the letting go. So there's always something we can do. There's always something we can do. Somebody rang me recently, a very uh, long-term, quite old friend of the community and that had uh, quite massive surgery, actually, not a small thing, and, and it left them disillusioned, depressed and saddened and disabled. They really weren't, they'd lost, they felt life was hopeless. There's nothing I can do, he was saying. So I said, well, actually, there's always something we can do. We can always do something about our situation. Dana Sila Bhavan, if, if Mahapajapati's eight points is too much, what well, we can do the three, contemplate. Dana Sila Bhavana, come and tune in. I mean, even if it just means, you know, putting out some water for the birds through the winter, that's an act of dana. You know, we don't have to have a, a lot of money before we can cultivate dana. So there's many ways we can meet the Buddha's teachings, but I would suggest that if we meet them with this, this interest in arriving at or going towards the actuality, not just standing at the gate of Amrawati and taking selfies, you know, go inside and listen to a Dhamma talk. You know, you know. When we're suffering, not just complaining and blaming and criticizing who we think is responsible for it, but going in and looking and asking, say, what is it we're doing 
So this, uh, the teachings as we've received them, we're fortunate to receive them, and there's many ways to pick them up. As I was saying, Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati's eight points or the three points, or if, you, if, if three is too much, well then you could also do just one thing, which is I highly recommend, this is a bit, this is a bit kind of, you know, out of the ordinary, but I highly recommend you watch the way the All Blacks play rugby because it's beautiful, the way they cooperate. Now, really, no, really. You see, like if you see people, <laughs> if you see the way the All Blacks cooperate, you can't be a prima donna and be a good rugby player. You know, you could be a soccer player, but not a... Not a <laughs> that's an opinion, which I will endeavour to let go of. But seriously, <laughs> when you see cooperation, whether it's the All Blacks or whether you see it's an orchestra, listening to an orchestra, this willingness to let go of me and my way and you feel inspired, uplifted by it, take delight in that, and the heart is nourished and inspired. So thank you very much today for your attention.